Good morning. Merry Christmas. I want to say a special welcome to those of you who normally worship in our chapel worship gathering. Uh, I'm glad that you get to be a part of this for the music. If you're not aware, we have a chapel gathering every Sunday at 930, except next Sunday because of the Christmas Eve schedule. And that chapel service has some more uh, responsive readings, liturgical elements, near weekly communion, maybe some more traditional music mixed with some of the more contemporary music in our beautiful chapel space. And it's a great option if at times you say, I would like something that is maybe less rock and roll, more church. If that ever appeals to you, that is a great option uh, there as well. Um, uh, Today, we are going to be doing our message and music service. This is something that we have done traditionally here for years and years. And we're going to talk about two titles for God, the Son of God for Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. I'm going to talk about Son of God. And in just a few moments, uh, Kathy Schmidt's going to talk about Son of Man. And Kathy has been a part of Orchard Hill here for uh, almost 30 plus years uh, since the early 90s and is one of the people who have really helped to shape this church that a lot of you may not know. She served in kids ministry, kids fest, uh, was involved in small groups, has been a BSF teaching leader for this area for uh, well over a decade, has served on our church board as a servant leader, has been uh, somebody who has just recently come on our staff team to help with first impressions, and I'm excited that you're going to get a chance to hear from her and Ron and Kathy, among hundreds of other couples who and families and individuals who are part of this church, are a testimony just to how God can use faithfulness over a long period of time. For some 30 years, they've just plugged in and served, and part of why this church is what it is today is people like Kathy, and so I'm excited you're going to get to hear from her. So I'm going to start by talking about the Son of God. God uh, as a title for Jesus, and you know that names are important, and here's what I mean. Parents come up with names for their children, and they usually try to have some significance. These are some of the top trending names for this last year. Neva, N-E-V-A-E-H, and evidently the logic of that is it's heaven spelled backwards, and so you didn't just want to call your child heaven, so they went with Neva. Zuli, Z-U-L-Y. I have no idea what that's about. Violina, which is for somebody who probably loves music. There's the name Marvelous, which probably is saying, I want my child to be marvelous. And then somebody named their daughter Modesty. I don't know if they were trying to ascribe some kind of title that they hoped would, would play itself out or what exactly. But you know, if you've ever named a child, how important that is. But probably what's more important are self-designations. Like you may have been given a name and you go by the name because it's your given name, but there are probably nicknames or titles that have been ascribed to you or that you've even embraced over time that you say, this is probably a better window into who I am. In fact, I would suggest that in our day and age, in some ways, our passwords that we use probably reveal something about us. I mean, if you think about your passwords, are you the kind of person who like puts your pet name in and then, you know, every time you have to change it, you add another exclamation point? Or are you the kind of person who has this, this intricate password system with numbers and names and, and different symbols so that, so that you know, or do you just use the same password all the time? 
I was tech support for my wife for years. <laughs> and in that role, um, there were often opportunities that I had to ascribe to her a password, which is kind of a unique and fun opportunity. <laughs> and so I decided that what I would do to keep it simple for her is I would just give her the same password every time that I entered her password. By the way, she has now figured this out and reset her password <laughs> everywhere. And so I decided that it would be great to have to make her type, Kurt is hot, every single time she had to enter something in. And um, it's no wonder that she figured out how to reset her passwords and said, I don't want to have to type that anymore. It's embarrassing. But the, the, the names that are ascribed matter, and there are dozens of names and titles for Jesus in the scriptures. But two of them, that get some of the most attention are son of God, son of man. And the title son of God is one that when you first hear it for Jesus, if you've been around church, especially for some time, you say, oh yeah, of course Jesus is God. Of course he's the son of God. And it feels a little obvious, maybe a little mundane, but look at these verses again in Luke chapter one, verse 32. Here's what it says. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and will be called the son of God. Now, the reason that I say this isn't obvious is because when you hear that, if you just hear it with modern ears, without some Old Testament background, you may just say, well, it's just another kind of designation. But this was significant because for a Jewish person to say this person is the son of God would have been almost akin to blasphemy. And yet that is a title that Jesus took for himself. In Genesis 15, we see a little something of what's significant with this title in that the son of somebody meant that they were the ones who could perpetuate the lineage of that person. And so to be the son of God means that Jesus was claiming that he could perpetuate the lineage of God himself. Here's where we see this, Genesis chapter 15, verse 2 and following. And Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not only be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And his point, very simply, that to be the son of somebody meant that you weren't just an heir, but you carried on the line. And then in Proverbs chapter 10, we see this about a son. And that is a son is one who brings glory to the father, honors the father. A wise son, it says, Proverbs 10.1, brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. Proverbs 15, verse 20, says it this way. It says, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish man despises his mother. And so it isn't obvious to us what a big deal this is, because sometimes 
we hear it and we don't ascribe to it all that the Old Testament imagery loads into this image. Jesus is the one who extends the lineage of God himself and brings honor to God. One author in writing about Jesus put it this way. He said, let's call the role of some of the professions and how the titles of Christ play in. To the artist, he's the one who's altogether lovely. To the architects, he's the chief cornerstone. To the physicians, he's the great physician. To the preachers, he's the word of God. To the philosophers, he's the wisdom of God. To the dying, he's the resurrection and the life. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the farmers, he's the lord of the harvest. To the professors, he's the master teacher. To the prodigals, he's the forgiving father. To the lost sheep, he's the good shepherd. To the thirsty souls, he's the water of life. To the hungry, he's the bread of life. And to the philanthropist, he is the God, he is God's unspeakable gift. God in Jesus is the son of God and thus the authority of God to extend who he is to the world. But it isn't mundane for another reason. And this is in Romans chapter eight. There's a section in Romans eight that talks about adoption of sons for people who believe in Jesus. So Jesus is the son of God, but he makes it possible for all people to come to be the children of God, the sons of God. Here's what we read. This is Romans 8, verse 19. It says this, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And if you read through this passage, you see this idea of adoption, this idea of, uh, of not just being somebody who believes in God and has a future and a ticket to heaven, but that you can be the son of God now. Now, you may read that in the translation that we use here, the NIV. It translates its children, but it actually says sons in the original language. And this is a place where this doctor or this translation of trying to be a little gender neutral, which generally is a good thing to be gender neutral, misses something. And the reason it misses something is to be a son meant that you had a special heir in that culture. In our culture, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but in that culture, it meant that. And he's saying, if you're a son of God, you can share in everything that God has secured for people. Now, you may say, well, that sounds sexist. Well, the Bible also calls all people who are believers the bride of Christ, so it kind of cuts both ways. You're a bride, you're a son, okay? Just deal with it. <laughs> now, here's the, the, the reason that this is so significant. Jesus is the son, and he makes it possible that those who believe in him will also be the sons or the children of God. That means that today, as you sit here, if you believe in God, you are a child of God. You have the value, the worth, the inheritance, the whole being of divinity has been, in a sense, bequeathed to you. And somehow... We can say, well, the son of God, it's just one of those titles that we get. I saw an article that somebody sent me about 
a person who bought a copy of a Rembrandt at an auction and paid $15,000 for it. I don't know if you saw this news story. It just came out last week. Turns out the painting was an actual Rembrandt and it was worth $14 million, so it wasn't a bad investment. Uh, $15,000 got the $14 million because they found it was a real Rembrandt. Here's what it means when you say, I'm a son of God, I'm a child of God. You were made by the God of the universe and reborn in the image of Jesus Christ to bring honor to God and to continue the line of God just like Jesus. You see, Jesus saying, I'm the son of God, means he's saying, I have the authority of God. But by extension, he's saying, I'm inviting any of you anyone, everyone to come and experience what it means to be a child of God. So as you are here today, you may be here saying, you know, I'm just struggling with life. Do I have value? Is, is my life worth living? Am I loved? Do I matter? Do I have a future? And the answer is, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, then you are a child of God, a son of God. The answer is yes, because Jesus came as the son of God. God, help us to understand the beauty of these titles, these images, and to live in the reality of them and not just gloss over them. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. That beautiful song that we just heard by Colleen and Chris just reminds us of what Jesus said when he declared, I am the light of the world. Jesus was very intentional with his words. He, to describe who he was, who he is, and what he came to do, and to reveal to us different facets of his nature as God and different facets of his nature as Savior. Jesus, proclaiming this truth, I am the light of the world, would have reminded those Israelites of the pillar of fire in the wilderness that led the Israelites after they were brought out of Egypt. And just, just as the pillar of fire symbolized God's presence, God's protection, and God's guidance, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, was proclaiming as God that he offers his presence, his guidance, his protection to all who follow him. And as Kurt said, another way that Jesus helps us to understand who he is and what he has done is by his titles. And one of the, what we read so often in the Gospels is the Son of Man. That in fact, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man over 70 times in the Gospels. The expression Son of Man so often in the Old Testament meant man or mankind. But yet in the book of Daniel, the phrase Son of Man refers to a heavenly being who was given authority and given a kingdom. And so let's look at those verses again. At this time in, Dan, in Daniel um, chapter seven, Daniel records this vision that was revealed to him um, while the nation of Israel was in captivity. And as they lived those long years in captivity, they most likely wondered if God had forgotten them, if God had turned his back on them, and if God had forgotten his promises that he made to them. And it's at this very time that God gives Daniel this vision of a glorious future, the coming of a king and establishment of a kingdom. And that would give them hope. And that's what gives us hope today. So let's look again at those words in Daniel chapter seven. We read, as I looked, 
Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. What Daniel saw here was awe-inspiring and I imagine terrifying all at the same time. The Ancient of Days, he refers to God the Father and it speaks of his eternity. Daniel tries to describe, he describes um, God here in human terms. He tells, says he took a seat. He had clothing as white as snow. He had hair white as wool. And all of this would speak to the holiness, the very holiness of the Ancient of Days of God. And Daniel speaks of the glory of God, and he describes that by what surrounds God. The throne was flaming with fire. The wheels were all, all ablaze. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And then we see the Ancient of Days. He takes his throne as the judge. Court is convened. The books are open, and judgment is now at hand. And as Daniel continues to watch, he, dis- he sees someone descending from the crowds. And let's look at those verses. That's in verse 13. It says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given, he was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all nations, and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so this time Daniel saw in this vision another figure, one like a son of man, and he sees a human there. Yet this person is coming. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. And in the Old Testament, clouds are an accompaniment to deity of deity. In uh, God repeatedly descended in a cloud and or appeared to the Israelites in the cloud in the Old Testament. And so this one, this one like a man coming with the clouds of heaven means that this person is divine and yet he has this appearance of a man. When the son of man is brought into the presence of the ancient of days, the ancient of days eternal rule is delegated to this son of man. The son of man is given absolute authority. He's giving, he has, he will have the power, all power to rule. In his kingdom, the son of man will be honored. He will be honored by those that he rules over. Their hearts of everyone will honor the son of man. His dominion, his power, his right to govern will be everlasting. And lastly, the son of man's kingdom will never be conquered. This kingdom will never end, and this kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus. Jesus chose this title, Son of Man, to connect himself to this prophecy, to let his audience know, and to let each one of us here know that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And he uses this title so often in the Gospels. You'll see him say, the Son of Man is the one who is as the authority to forgive sins. The son of man is the one who must suffer 
and the son of one who must, is the one that must be rejected and delivered into the hands of men and killed. And the son of man will rise in three days. He specifically uses this title when he is referring to his second coming, when he will come in all power and all glory. And we see that in Matthew chapter 26 as we read about a time when Jesus was on trial and he was questioned there by the chief priests and he was questioned by the Sanhedrims. And let's look at those verse, verse 63. It says, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus replies, he said, you have said so. You have said so. He goes on to say, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus confirms that he is the son of man. And while scripture, scripture attributes supreme sovereignty to God the Father, it is very clear. It is God the Father intention or his purpose that Jesus will rule the world. This everlasting kingdom will come by the saving work of the Son of Man. It's by his perfect life. It's by his suffering, his death, his resurrection that he rescues people. He rescues us and brings us into God's kingdom, making all of us who place our faith in him kingdom people, as Kurt said. He rescues us. He redeems us to be the humanity that functions in God's image and in God's likeness. He transforms us. And although as history records and as we see today, there is rebellion against God. There's rebellion against Jesus. There's rejection of Jesus. But scripture tells us there will be a day when Jesus is honored. A day will come when Jesus will be Lord of all. Sin will be judged and the sovereignty of Jesus will be revealed. Charles Haddon Spurden, a, a preacher in the 1800s once said, he says, brethren, no truth ought to be more frequently proclaimed next to the first coming of the Lord than to his second coming. And he goes on to say, you cannot thoroughly set forth all the ends and bearings of the first advent if you forget the second advent. And so as we begin and start to celebrate the very birth of Jesus, let's not forget. Let's not forget that this baby Jesus is God the Son, is God is the son of man. He one day will be the supreme ruler of the world, a ruler who has stepped down from his throne, who takes on human flesh and brings salvation to both you and to me. And so my question is for all of us today is, who is Jesus to you as Kurt was tying? You know, if we ask Siri, Siri says Jesus was a well, a first century Jewish um, preacher and a religious leader. But this question, who is Jesus to you personally, is so very important. Because the way we answer this question will determine our destiny. It will also determine how we live our lives day after day, what decisions we make, and how we view our circumstances, and how we view the circumstances of this world around us. And so Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the light of the world, the King of Kings, who one day will be the supreme ruler of the world. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Have you submitted your life to Jesus? He offers you his presence. He offers you his protection and his guidance. 
And he offers us to be a son or a daughter of his perfect, everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for um, all that you have done for us. It's by your grace, Lord, that we, um, we know you and we bring glory to you. May we honor you, Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs>